We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 137. Our guest today is a corporate attorney by day and a horse girl by every other hour that she isn't working. She has an incredible story and she has so much knowledge when it comes to law, but especially has knowledge in equine law where she helps draft bills of sales and lease agreements and SBA loans during the pandemic. And she's super passionate about it. So I thought it would be fun to have her on here to talk about logistics of what you should have in place as a horse owner. If you're looking to buy or lease a horse, or if you own a horse property. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today, Madison Wiles Hafner. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I would love to hear, obviously you have a crazy intense day job as a corporate attorney, but I know there you are still a major horse girl. So would love to hear about how you first kind of found yourself in the equestrian world. Yeah, so I actually grew up with horses. My mom and her sister and and their whole family, they had horses at home and they actually fox hunted on Long Island. Oh, cool. And then when I was little, my mom was leasing this this cute little gray mare named Mary Likes and she would bring me to the barn with her. I was probably two, three years old and I would just climb under the horse's bellies on cross ties and she would lose track of me in the barn. And so she finally decided when I turned four that she had to put me on top of a horse and it's just, I've never turned back. I love that. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And I actually, I grew up showing Morgans and riding saddle seat. And then it wasn't until college that I switched over to the whole hunter jumper world. Very confusing transition for me. Yeah. What, what brought on the switch? So it seems naive now, but I had this thought when I was in college because I, I grew up in New Hampshire and then I went to NYU in New York City and there weren't that many saddle seat barns around. And I thought, <laughs> I'm laughing at myself even saying this, I thought that the hunter jumper world was a little less expensive than the saddle seat world and that maybe as a college student, I could kind of <laughs> find my way in. Um, oh, Madison. <laughs> I, uh, I know that's not true. And now I'm hooked in the hunter jumper world and here I am. (laughs) But then also it was NYU had a riding team, but they only did, you know, the hunter jumper thing. Sure. Um, So I kind of had to figure that out. We got a whopping um, 10 lessons a year on the riding team and then we would show on the weekends. So that's how I figured out how to ride in a hunt seat saddle and, and jump a course. It was not pretty at first, <laughs> uh, but I actually took some time off. I took my, my first year of college off. I had kind of burnt out a little bit from showing and, and doing the whole saddle seat circuit and needed some time to myself and to focus on school. So I, I joined the team at NYU as a sophomore, and then I took more time I, I worked in between undergrad and law school. And so during that time, I didn't ride 
I, I volunteered a little bit at a local therapeutic writing center in Queens. And then the very first day of law school, I distinctly remember I, I walked out of my last class and I realized the insane amount of pressure that I would be under in law school. And I looked up the closest local barn that I could get to via public transit. I took a bus and I called them and I scheduled a lesson because I needed that release. I needed horses back in my life. And I found that to be very true, you know, ever since then is that my schedule is crazy all the time, but I need the horses to ground myself. That's Mm -hmm. what kind of helps me be a good lawyer and helps me be a little more balanced just to be able to step away and go visit my horse and go for a ride and, and get clarity. That's so necessary for me. How often do you ride now? Probably five days a week. Oh, Sometimes nice. a little bit less. Yeah, we try. There's a, a group of adults at my barn and we do a late night lesson a couple days a week. And if I can't do that, then I'll try to go early before work. But working remotely certainly helps the situation. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, what does what does a normal day or week kind of look like for you with your job and with riding and like how you fit it all in? Yeah, so it really varies. A lot of my practice as a lawyer is in the mergers and acquisitions space. So you're kind of at everybody else's mercy and the workload really ebbs and flows. But I guess usually I, I try to be at my desk around 8 a.m., start working, and I just power through. And then I'll usually leave for the barn in the evening and, and spend a, a couple of hours doing that. My barn is not that close. It's 45 minutes away. So it's, it's kind of always an endeavor. And then I usually will log on again until, I don't know, let's say 11 o'clock, midnight or so, and just finish up for the night. Obviously, you aren't uh, focusing on any equine law, but have you run into a bit throughout your riding career? Yes. <laughs> and, you know, it's not, it's not in my umbrella at my, at my law firm, but it's something that I actually feel very passionately about. And I've certainly helped friends along the way in barns and, and dabbled with small clients here and there, but it kind of seems to get overlooked a little bit. Yeah, what would you say are some of the things that you find most important for, let's say, riders and trainers? I feel like it's a whole separate ball game with barn owners, but for riders and trainers, what are some things that you feel like get overlooked? Yeah, so I mean, they kind of fall into two different buckets, the riders and trainers and the barn. But I think that in our industry, our industry gang, horses. We're so focused on the horses and the sport itself that I feel like we don't actually step back and take the time to think about how we as riders and trainers can protect ourselves. So I'm I'm losing sight of your question here and I might just go on a tangent, but I think a lot of times, you know, at least for trainers, you're still operating a business. And in that sense, there's a lot in the, the legal space that goes into that. And then for riders, I mean, as as horse owners, you have to protect yourself. This is a huge investment. It doesn't matter what amount of money you spent on your horse. It's a huge investment. And you need mm-hmm. to think about how to protect yourself in that sense. Um, so what are some ways that 
riders or, or I guess just horse owners can do to protect themselves? So I think probably starting with one thing that I see a lot is there's all of these basically like plug and play downloadable free bills of sales or lease agreements that you can find on Google. And you can, you can download that on your phone and just plug it in right in your phone. And I think that does that freak you out? <laughs> so much. So much. <laughs> oh. I hate it. I hate it. Something <laughs> <is> so raw. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, tell tell me tell me some things that are that are really like cringy or frighten you about those free downloadable plug in and submit bill of sales and lease agreements. Yeah. So I think for starters, every situation is unique, and so I think to to think that you can sum up a relationship and accurately protect that relationship in a one-page document that you found on Google. I mean, that's not really likely. And I think that it's a little bit tough because in the moment, everything seems all rosy and beautiful and, you know, every everybody's happy and you're really probably not thinking how you need to protect yourself long-term because everything seems so perfect in the moment. So you're not really thinking through all the hypotheticals of what could go wrong. And so to me, that's, that's the biggest thing. And I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, here's a good one. So let's say that you, you purchase a horse and you've used one of these bills of sale that you found on Google that probably just says, my horse's name is Sierra. So I'll use Sierra as an example. You've purchased Sierra, the chestnut Oldenburg mare for, let's say, $20,000. And, you know, you give me the cash, the horse is yours, sign, and you're done. Okay, well, now, what happens if Sierra, a year after you bought her, as it turns out, she has this pre-existing injury that maybe didn't show up on your vet check because it had healed. But let's say an insurance claim was filed for this and that also didn't show up when you were doing your due diligence of buying the horse. And now you have a horse that is injured and you can't get insurance coverage for it because a claim was already filed for this. And the horse now sits in a stall and you can't do anything about it. So that's a pretty tough spot to be in. But if you had sat down and actually thought through, all right, maybe you didn't know about this pre-existing injury, that's Mm -hmm. fine. But there's other ways that you could protect yourself in a contract if you use more than just a downloadable form. From the side of being being someone who's looking to own, to purchase a horse or lease a horse kind of on that end of the agreement, what are some things that they should be looking for on a bill of sale or lease, you know, that's in the, in the fine print or or some areas that they can be protecting themselves as a new leasee or, or buyer? Yeah. So I actually think that probably leasing is even more important. Sure. In this respect, because sometimes you're dealing with more money than you would if you bought the horse outright. And so there you'll want to think through kind of the same thing that I just mentioned is what happens if the horse gets injured? Who's paying for the insurance? Who's going to get the insurance payout if something happens to the horse? If something happens to the horse, do you have to continue to pay 
board on it and keep it for the remainder of the lease? Or Mm -hmm. can you send it back? Even if you don't necessarily get your lease money back, can you send it back? Right. Because I mean, how much is board every month that adds up? I mean, to me, that's usually more expensive than the cost of the horse is having to pay the upkeep on something that, you know, you, you sits in itself and you stare at. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think too, I mean, another hypothetical would be if you're renewing a lease, let's say you've decided to stick with the same horse and mm-hmm. extend past your initial 12 month term. And I mean, this, the same goes for for buying, you need to sit down and you need to read the agreement through and through. You can't just assume that what you signed previously in a lease will be what you're signing again, even though the horse that you're getting is the same, right? So you don't want to be in a situation where you just kind of take your trainer's word for it and sign the lease only to find out that, you know, maybe something that you had agreed to initially is no longer in there. I could think of of one example is, you know, somebody has a horse that when they went to lease it for the first term, it didn't pass the vet check, which is fine, right? I mean, and that's where we get into you want to protect yourself with mm-hmm. more than mm-hmm. just a Google form is if it doesn't pass the vet check, that's that's not the end of the world. That's fine. We can build something into a contract that protects you. So, you know, in that situation, you would put something in your lease that you know, says if the horse shows up lame or unusable for a certain period of time because of whatever injury made it fail the vet check, then you can return the pony and you can get your money back for any unused portion of the lease. So great, that's that's in your year one lease contract. And now you've renewed the lease and your trainer says, it's the same exact lease, everything looks great, just sign it and you just sign it. And now, you know, your horse shows up lame, you're two years into the lease and it's lame because of why it didn't pass the vet check and you Mm. consult your lease agreement and oops, as it turns out in year two, they had removed that clause. Oh gosh. Yeah. Right. That's a nightmare. And I feel like that actually happens more frequently than we would think. And especially I'm guilty of it too. I take my trainer's word Mm -hmm. for everything, right? I think she's fantastic I think she's a goddess what what she says goes but then if you're in a situation like that I feel like a lot of us just rely on what our trainer says and we run with it and we can get ourselves in trouble and that's not to say that our trainers don't have the best intentions it's just they're not always thinking from a legal perspective or even sure. from a business perspective yeah absolutely Okay, so now I have a question for you listening. Are you tired of searching multiple websites for equestrian products and services? Do you wish you could browse horses for sale just after ordering monthly supplements? Well, our lovely sponsor today, Equivant, was created to help bridge the gap between riders and equestrian businesses. Equivant works with the best equestrian businesses to bring you quality products, great horses, and reputable service providers all in one online COVID safe place. Equivant provides information on horses for sale, for lease. They also provide different information for grooming products, supplements, riding apparel, trainers, clinics, tack, vets, and trailers, just to name a few. They really do have everything you need for you and your horse. So if you haven't checked out Equivant, make sure you head over to their website. It's equivant.com, E-Q-U-I-V-O-N-T.com to find out more information and to start shopping. Thank you so much, Equivant. 
All right, let's head back to the episode. Then as far as someone who owns and runs a barn, are there certain, or what would you say are the documents or the protection that those individuals should make sure that they have in place? Yeah, so I mean, COVID aside, because COVID is its own um, beast in terms of compliance for barns. Yeah. I think first and foremost, don't let anybody get on a horse without signing uh, a waiver mm-hmm. and a release of liability. I mean, the truth is that in a lot of states, courts won't actually even uphold that, but you'll want that in place for insurance. Sure. I know a lot of insurance companies won't let you file a claim if a person didn't sign a release. So I think that that's certainly step one. I know my barn in particular we implemented a facilities use agreement, which might be helpful. And we did that when COVID started, just simply because the barn needs to protect itself and it needs to protect its employees and make sure that everybody on the property is staying safe. So we put that in place. And then of course, I think signs help, signs about liability and making sure that you're actually following your your state's requirements. I think it's New Jersey, for example, if you're under the age of 18, you have to be wearing a helmet when you're on a horse. Mm-hmm. So things of that nature certainly help. And then I think a lot of barns too fall into the lease category. You know, my barn, for example, does uh, like a share lease program Okay. where you have, I don't want to call it a lesson horse. They're usually fancy and fantastic. So are lesson horses, but um, you have a lease horse that's owned by the barn. And in that situation, you'll also want to implement good lease agreement that protects you as a barn owner and also as an owner. Yeah, definitely. Can you talk to, it's, what are those called? The SBA loans? Have you been doing a lot of those during the pandemic or or talking through some of those with friends or other people that you know that own barns? Yeah. So that's actually a really important resource that barn owners can tap into is the SBA loan and the, it's called the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, just gives you an extra bit of capital, an extra bit of cash to work with when things are a little bit tight. And if you use this chunk of money that you get from the SBA in accordance with a certain set of rules, which is honestly pretty easy to to do. It's usually uh, has to do with paying out payroll and similar um, expenses. Okay. Then it's actually not a loan. It's just, it gets forgiven. Otherwise, if you have to use it outside of the specified uses, it is a loan, but it's a pretty low interest rate. So I feel like that's certainly a resource for barn owners and other, you know, even small businesses in the equine industry, it's, it's super helpful and it yeah. should definitely be talking to. And it's really not an exhaustive process to obtain either. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Good to know. What would you say is an area of the industry besides all this? Cause I feel like this is great nugget of information, but that you are particularly passionate about within the industry that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either doesn't know a lot about, or just doesn't talk that much about. Yeah, so there's a lot that I could say here on so many different topics, but one thing that I'm particularly passionate about is that I am a crazy horse girl through and through, Mm -hmm. and uh, I just 
I love the horses, the core by being, I think they are wonderful. And I think that what's been happening a lot now, more so than I ever noticed when I was a kid or, you know, at any time growing up is that I feel like horses are being treated as a piece of equipment, you know, that, that this is a sport and this horse is our piece of equipment and it's disposable. And mm. I think that there's a lot to be talked about there. I think that when you're purchasing a horse, it's important to think through what am I going to do with this horse long-term? What happens when it gets old? What happens when it can't do its job or it can't do the, the job that I want? I mean, a perfect example is and you talk about protecting yourself as a horse owner. I'm, I'm about to embarrass myself here, but I bought my mare. She was my first big adult purchase and I was all excited and I was still shopping for insurance quotes. And I kid you not, I am not making this up. Seven days after I bought her, she stepped on a nail, developed an infection in her bursa and I was told she couldn't live. And if she lived, she'd never be a riding horse again. Um, but she just had, I mean, so many complications thereafter. Wow. She had a, a procaine reaction, which is when the penicillin, an element from the penicillin seeps into their brain. I mean, really crazy stuff happened and I'm digressing here, but my point being, you know, the first six, seven months of owning that horse, she sat in her stall and then she came back and I love her bits and pieces, but she's not the horse that I intended her to be, right? She's not the horse that I have purchased because she certainly has limitations and everything sure. like that. But long-term, she's sticking with me. And so I think that it's important. People need to think through these things, right? You can't just take a horse that's been through all of that and throw them in a field and call it a day and move on to the next best thing. And I think that especially with social media, you know, where everybody... You, you scroll through your feed and you see these amazing pictures of these people at fantastic horse shows jumping enormous fences. And I want to be that too. And I feel like you run the risk of either burning out the horse that you do have, or kind of thinking of them as disposable, moving up the ladder and, and not really thinking through what happens to this horse next. Are there things that you can do? And I know I'm thinking of a couple situations in my head with with clients that I've worked with or past transactions that I've been a part of where people can kind of help with this area in in the equine law division with how they create contracts. I know like for instance, when you, let's say there's a horse that isn't quite at the kind of like what you were intending it for. And I know a big part of this podcast I love talking about is the fact that when you purchase a horse, the intention should be that you are responsible for that horse's care and you're an advocate for that horse until it's no longer on this earth. So I feel like there are some ways if, let's say, you don't have all the cash in the world to have a property to retire your horses and, and all of that, or if you have been moving up levels and maybe the horse isn't the, isn't, you know, either fit to do that or, you know, it just, it just ended up not being a good fit, that there are ways to if you do find another loving home for the horse to include in a bill of sale or a type of contract, whether that's a sale or a lease that 
if that individual is looking to then sell the horse that the original owner gets notified and gets is essentially like first in line to have that horse again. Have you kind of come in contact with that or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I have. And I think that that's actually a really smart way to handle the situation is to write a clause that says, you know, if you ever want to sell the horse or you're in a position where you can no longer afford it or Mm -hmm. something happens and you can't have the horse in your possession anymore for whatever reason, you take it back. You know, I, I actually... I did draft something like that once upon a time. I remember somebody had sold a horse to the local police department and they specifically, we drafted a provision right in the contract that said, if this horse isn't fit to serve as a police horse, or if it's just not working out, it's just not the horse that you wanted. It's not what you thought. I'll take it back and I'll give you another horse of -hmm. of equal value. And I think that something like that makes everybody feel better. I mean, yeah. As um, it's like, yeah, we get it. Like life happens uh, and whether it's financial or just not the right fit, like it doesn't always happen. And, and that's, that's horses. That's the name of the sport. It doesn't always turn out like our, our, our dreams and goals and plans. Rarely it's fine. Right. Exactly. So, but having, I feel like having something like that is a way that, you know, this, I feel like this topic is so important to talk through and especially having you on with, you know, the attorney side of the situation, that there are ways to, I think, if it doesn't work out for you personally, that you are still doing everything in your power to keep track of where that horse is so that you know when it's nearing the end of its life and it's ready to retire and it's ready to be done and kind of enjoy the rest of its days, that you know exactly where that horse that you originally purchased is. I just think keeping track of a horse in that way is kind of a way that we can be improving on this situation. Completely agree. And I think it's a really good option to do it. And I mean, then you're, you're legally obligated or whoever you sell to is legally obligated to come to you and say, do you want this horse or tell you what's going on with the horse so that you don't find your horse, you know, on a kill pen listing Mm -hmm. 10 years from now. Exactly. That's all we want to avoid. I mean, they work so hard for us. They deserve a fantastic retirement. And I think that that's a really safe way to deal with it. Definitely. It's uh, the more I look into kill pens and rescue and all of that, it just makes me sick to think about not only just the amount of horses, but also how many high quality, like hard working show horses even have ended up on those lists. It's just so sad. Obviously every single horse of any ability, it's terrible, but to think that something that could be so easily avoidable through something like this on a contract, having a clause just to keep track of where your horses are. I mean, I feel like would significantly decrease that kill pen list. Absolutely. And I mean, I think it goes to, you know, case in point that a lot of people just feel when the the horse can't serve its purpose for them anymore, we'll just, you know, kick it to the curb and move on. And, and that's just, I mean, it could be so useful for somebody else, maybe to lower level mm-hmm. or whatever, but have something in an agreement that says, you know, let me know what's happening with the mm-hmm. horse or let me know if you have to get rid of it, it, it really 
protects you. Definitely. You know, it sounds cheesy, but it protects your heart too. It's never easy selling a horse. Um, right. And I'm someone who has never sold a horse. They like, <laughs> have my 27 year old retired show horse from when I was a kid. Right. Uh, but I think it's certainly, it's smart and it saves a lot of heartache. Definitely. Well, Madison, thank you so much for sharing all of your information. I feel like, I feel a little guilty. I feel like you should be sending me an invoice for <laughs> all of your legal advice, but I really appreciate it. I hope people can take this info and make sure that they are have all their ducks in a row when it comes to buying and selling and how to protect themselves and their animals. But thank you again so much, and I wish you all the best. Thank you. It's a nice chatting. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.